Please open your Bible to Leviticus chapter 24. We're going to pick up uh, where, we, uh, where we really left off last week. When you look at Leviticus 24, we started talking really verses 1 through 4. We were speaking about what? The holy oil. It was the holy oil that we were focused on, and we looked at the foreshadowing and obviously the speaking and symbolism regarding the Holy Spirit. Well, now we're going to finish off the chapter today. We're going to look at the holy bread. And there's no coincidence, I, I didn't uh, get a chance to meet with the worship team in talking about this, but I was so blessed to hear worship here this evening. And two of the three songs that we were just singing, the name of the Lord, you know, the name of the Lord. And right as we get down to really verse 10 and on, we're going to look at the holy name of God. Just perfect, beautiful timing of that. And also the protection of that name. And we're going to see that. So... Go ahead and open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 24, and let's, uh, let's bow our heads and we'll begin in prayer this evening. Father God, we, we desire to come and, and uh, meet with you right now, Lord. We want to hear your still small voice. Speak into our hearts here powerfully, Lord. We are your servants, Lord Jesus, and we want to hear what your spirit has to say. Lord, as we look at this tonight, we, we know, Lord, this was always a foreshadowing of, Father, of your son, Jesus Christ. A promise. Lord, a promise that we now understand and hold to be true. Lord, it's everything. Jesus, what you've done for us on Calvary, Lord, we don't have the words to even begin to thank you. Lord, may our lives, Lord, be laid down. Living sacrifices. For that is our reasonable service, as you tell us, Lord, in Romans. God, thank you here for this evening, and I pray right now, Lord, your word would minister to our hearts. You would examine those things that need to be just tilled up, Lord, and you'd produce a new and a fresh work in us, Jesus Christ. Light the fire again, Lord, as we're waiting for your second coming. Soon and very soon, Jesus, we know we'll be together. In your holy name, Jesus, we all pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Praise God. Yeah, I was blessed by worship tonight. I, uh, you know, uh, Parker slowed it down a little bit, and I just, you know, just how great thou art. And you just sit there, and I just, we're going to do that for all of eternity. You know, Aaron's over there singing, and I'm just, man, I'm just lost in it. I, I just, I almost said, let's just keep going. Let's just keep going. I love worship. Well, now we get to feast on the Word of God. So let's, let's look at verse 5. We've come this far in chapter 24. And we're going to look at verses 5 through 9 as we look at the holy bread. You guys want some holy bread? I want some holy bread, man. And you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it, two-tenths of an ephah. Circle that, by the way. We're going to come back to that. Shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six in a row, and on the pure gold table before the Lord. And you shall put pure, how many times do we see pure, pure, frankincense on each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons that they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him. From the offerings of the Lord made by fire for a perpetual statute, he tells us. 
There's so much into this. Where do we begin? First, let's talk about manuscripts. I asked you to circle ephah, right? It says a tenth. And some of the better manuscripts, we really don't know exactly what it is. It correctly, in the Hebrew, reads a tenth part. A tenth part. Why am I making a big deal of that in translation? I understand what the, the scribe was doing. Because if you would have taken this ephah and you would, have, you would have used this much, this two-tenths of it, it would have produced bread that would be so large that as you had to put this on a table that's three foot long by a foot and a half wide by a two foot high table. And remember, we're in the holy, right? We're in the holy area right before the Holy of Holies. On the left side, we have what? We talked about it last week, a five foot lampstand filled with oil, radiating the Holy Spirit, giving direction. As we read, you know, in Psalm, it's a, the light is a what? A lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. That's right. That's what the word of God is. Jesus Christ as well. Obviously, he's the word. Became flesh. So as we look at this, we had then this table of incense. Prayer, we talked about before you can even begin service, before you can do anything for the Lord. It begins in prayer. And it should be all bathed and covered in prayer. We sort of meditated on that and was like, oh yeah, praise Jesus. Absolutely. This priest understood before he was going to do any ministering. Well, then right on the right-hand side, directly across from that five-foot lampstand, is this table of showbread, this holy bread. And as I mentioned, it's three foot long. Okay. It's a foot and a half wide. It's, it's not terribly wide that way. And it's a two foot tall table, you know, kind of a little bit lower. That makes sense because remember, you're talking darkness in there. If it wasn't for that light there, you have three or four different layers of linen and different things like that. You wouldn't be able to see anything, but it's that light. And so light being higher does what? It illuminates what's there. So you would be able to see these, these actual loaves of bread. And, and like I mentioned, that size of table, if it really was two EFFs, again, the, the, the bread would almost be spilling off the table because it's only a foot and a half, you know, depth. It's, it's, not, it's not like, you know, it probably one loaf, some of scholars have suggested, maybe they even were set in six and two rows, but they were even stacked. Some scholars have said when they've gone back and looked at this that possibly they, what, what in the Hebrew it's trying to connote is it was stacking of this bread. Then we see something else on here. And it's this idea of, you know, they had little burners back then that they would use. And it's almost as you've got these, either whether it's two different rows like that or whether it's one row, but it's just double stacked, how, however that was done. On top of that, there was what we believe is these burners that would be set on top of it that the Lord said would be a memorial and it was filled with frankincense. And it was placed right on top of that or, or directly on top of the bread maybe. We don't know. I don't want to be dogmatic and saying it was a burner, but, but as you read the, the Hebrew, it, it tends to give this idea and understanding that this is how it's being laid out. What is the bread of the tabernacle? speak of? Why is he talking about this holy bread? Why is he drawing our attention to it? What's it speaking of? Well, have you ever, um, I'm Italian, some of you know that, you know, when I get together, we're going we're gonna to break bread. We're going to break bread. What, what am I saying? We're going to eat. We're going to commune. We're going to fellowship. Look at this here. What the bread in this tabernacle speaks is the fellowship and communion with God. 
That's what this is. And it's so awesome because, the, the, you know, the symbolic of breaking bread with God. Because he dwells in the Holy of Holies. He dwells in this tent, this tabernacle that was erected. Because he said that this is where he would what? Dwell with his people. Now, this is very interesting because when we look at this breaking of bread, we're going to continue to read that obviously there was 12 loaves and they're brought out. And after, you know, a week, they do what? They take those loaves and they were to be given to the sons and Aaron, the priest. And what happened? Well, fresh loaves were brought out, right? Well, we get two things in that. I mean, you can't miss the symbolism of this. The first one is why 12 loaves? The 12 tribes of Israel. Now, if you're a priest or even a pastor today, often, um, specifically back then, more, more pertinent, you were carrying out your ministry duties, and often you weren't always with the people every day doing all the things that you would love to do because they're in the tent. They, if they went around people, and let's say that someone was defiled because they had touched something, that would make them what? defiled, and they would have to stay away for a certain period of time, right? And, and so there was some caution to that, and, and so they would be doing the work, and obviously they're trimming the wicks, and everything's continuously happening, and then you have priests outside that are obviously taking the offerings, and they're, you know, how many animals, you know, being slaughtered, and everything like that, and all, all that's going on. I believe, just as Aaron would wear that breastplate, and it had 12 gems in it, and that also was a reminder that he wore over his heart, close to his heart, that he was to minister to God, but he understood that part of his ministry had everything to do with the people that he was called to minister to on behalf of God as well, as he would make these offerings, even Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, chapter 16 of Leviticus. As he would go in, he obviously offered for himself first because he was defiled. He was unrighteous or not righteous that way. And then after he did that, he did an offering for all of the nation of Israel, the, the church, if you will, of Israel. Some 1.5 million to 3 million, one of the largest churches. And then every week they would bring this new bread in. And to me, that just spoke loudly. It's not that God wants a static relationship where there's bread that's brought and it it signifies fellowship, but then that's it. You know, like I talk to him in the morning for 30 minutes, but then where's my continual fellowship with him? Where, where's my continual meeting with him? You know, I think he was, he was, one, he's putting on the hearts of the people, the, obviously the minister prayed for them, but I also think he was putting on the heart of the pastor, the priest here, to constantly remember the people. Constantly remember the fellowship, to be praying for them. As he would look at those 12 loaves, as he would take them in and out, and he would be, he was constantly thinking of the people because who brought the meal and all the different stuff, the grain and everything to make the bread? It was the people that brought that and a hint of oil and everything else. Again, they were isolated to some degree. You think about it, even in the cities of refuge where they would go, they weren't in all the different cities. They had cities of refuge where they would dwell. But they were always to remember that God and his holy people desires a relationship. He desires a breaking of bread. He desires prayer for his people. He'll often use you and I for that intercessory prayer. He'll, he'll put you and I on each other's hearts. 
your family, your loved ones, friends, people you might have met one time. But he puts them on your heart to begin to pray. That's not coincidence. It doesn't just pop into your mind. No, it popped in your mind with purpose. There's purpose through the Holy Spirit in all that he does. But so, so is there in this constant reminder of, of this idea of breaking bread. You know, I enjoy when the Lord wakes me up with pictures of your faces often. Um, just this week, twice, he, he woke me up um, like 2 a.m. and one another day at 4 a.m. And I prefer more of the 5 a.m. wake-ups. I'm not going <laughs> to, the 4 a.m.s, but the 2 a.m.s happen. And um, he moves me to begin praying, whether it's for the sickness or illness or, or just for divine appointments, for people's jobs, for wisdom. And I know he does that in your lives too. I know he wakes you up and puts each other on your heart to begin praying. And, um, you know, my wife, she knows because I immediately begin to sit up and I just, I just start to pray. And often uh, I disturb her, I think, and I, by moving like that. And so she'll wake up and she'll just grab my hand. And, you know, sometimes I'm not even praying out loud. I'm just praying in the spirit whether it's in tongues or I'm just, I'm just, you know, I just, I'm just, you know, I'm just praying in the spirit and she's just holding my hand and she's praying and she knows that the Holy Spirit is just work. You know, he's just taking us in unity and bringing us into that sweetness. That's what God was showing us as a picture here. That's the difference between a pastor and a teacher. Teachers belong in seminaries. Pastors belong in churches. It's an under shepherd's heart. It's a heart to love and care for the people. These priests were constantly reminded to be praying for the tribes of Israel. Are you priests? Does the Bible tell you you're a royal priesthood, a peculiar people? Yes, it does. So what ought we to be doing? Praying. Are we in constant reminder or remembrance, maybe a better, better way of saying it, of all those around us, our nations in need of prayer. Are we in constant remembrance of all the things going on around us? Well, God bless you. I think as we, as we continue to look at this, um, as the Sabbath came, as the Shabbat came for them, the 12 loaves were changed, and they were given over to the priests, and they were allowed to eat the bread in this holy place. What did God want? He wanted fellowship to be fresh. <laughs> he pointed it out. He already told us what breaking of the bread was. He was already giving us the symbol of it. And now he's showing us how fresh he wants the fellowship to be. Do we go to God just when we're in need? Or do we come in God all the time, praying continuously, as Paul said, speaking to him as our Father in heaven? There's no greater joy. You know what I'm talking about, some of you. There's no greater joy than constantly speaking with God. He desires that. He set a tabernacle for Israel. He came and dwelt in that place, and he gave it as a picture for you and I of one that would come to save us, Jesus Christ, and how he too would enjoy that bread of life, that he would enjoy that fellowship too. Now, I'm not going to turn around and try to put a number on it. Some people, Pastor, well, how often should I be praying? Always. 
without ceasing, right? But, but, but pastor, what, what, what does my devotional life need to look like? Well, that's between you and the Lord. No man can answer that question. But I'll ask you, I'll ask you all to be earnest here tonight, sober-minded in this, in that if you were married, or you had a, a friend, a good friend, a best friend, if you're not married, if you're single, and you phoned home maybe once a day for an hour, or maybe even once a week, maybe once a month. Is that relationship? I think we all know the answer to that. If I phone home once a day, and I call my wife and I talk to her for an hour, but then the rest of the day I don't speak to her at all. You know, I don't converse with her in the most intimate times of my life, in the most stressful times, and in the most joyous times. If I'm not continuing to involve her, there's no relationship there. It's a matter of convenience at that point, isn't it? If we're being really honest, isn't it a matter of convenience if, if I just go to my spouse when I need something? I think you all get where the Lord's taken us on that. How do you think about your relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you want to spend eternity with him? Many of you have given your lives to Christ by laying your life down and, and you know, picking up your cross daily, as he said. But are you neglecting the fellowship? Are you so busy doing the work of the priest or the pastor or the royal priesthood? But are you taking the most important aspect of all of that and having that intimate time that you covet with God alone, that nobody else belongs in that place, not your wife, not your children, some of you, not your animals? <laughs> no one. Do you covet that special time with God? I think this is a beautiful perspective he's giving us here. He wanted fresh relationship. He wanted fresh fellowship. He didn't want stale communion with his people, but he wanted it to be fresh and real. Well, what was this bread called? I, I mentioned it's a table of showbread, right? What does that mean? I mean, Exodus chapter 25, 30 tells us it literally means bread of the face, if you're taking notes. Bread of the face. In the sense, it's being eaten in the presence of, or before the face of God. It's reminding us what it's all about. Isn't it interesting? Because today, if I said, hey, let's go break some bread, you almost all know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, all of you have heard that in some capacity. Did you know where it began? The concept of this breaking bread and fellowship? In the word of God. It's God's design. Fellowship. It's God's design. Well, it was also a reminder, again, to the priest or pastor, I believe, as we read in verse, you know, uh, 9 there, the sustenance for the pastor or the priest. Where did it come from? It came from God by the offering of the people. Not from striving, but from the offering of the people. The priest had no inheritance of the land. God is and always will be my provider, God is and always will be your provider, friends. He always will be. 
Yes, you have a privilege to be able to work. It is a privilege to be able to stand up and God has foreordained places for you to serve, work, wherever your ministry is, your tent making. But it's God who gives the increase. It's God who provides. Are we giving our first fruits and best to God? And I'm not just talking about your, your finances. I'm talking about your heart. Because it begins in the heart. I'm talking about the cycles of your mind. We only have so many cycles, don't we? At least I do. I only have so many cycles as I'm getting older. I, I, I begin to get to that point where I'm like, okay, reboot. We're going to be reading in chapter 25, the Sabbath year, you know, and the Sabbath jubilee, really the, the, really the feast of jubilee. You know what was so beautiful about that? God had built in a constant reminder for the children of Israel that every six years he was going to go before them and provide in a way that they would not be able to miss. So that as doubt or insecurity would set in, they would constantly be able to look at that and know their God is faithful and that he's a provider and he takes care of his sheep. They didn't follow. We have no record extra biblically through anything historically as a matter of fact, we have contrary. If you read the book of Daniel, and we'll talk a little bit as we get into chapter 25, everything points to where they didn't keep the year of Jubilee. They didn't keep the seventh year holy and set apart that the land could... Why, why am I sort of skipping ahead? I don't mean to do that, but, but I'm bringing up the point that God is our sustenance. And if we don't allow him to be that, if we, if we try to take his place by micromanaging God, how many people think God needs to have a micromanager? He doesn't need an assistant. He doesn't need an assistant. He's given us the Holy Spirit, right? He doesn't need an assistant that way. But, but as we look at that, I, I know I can, honestly, I can fall right into that, that tendency of, Lord, how's this going to work out? And I begin to worry or I begin to, well, <laughs> he is making it clear and he made it clear to Israel Watch and see. Watch my hand move. You can't outgive me. You can't outgive God. But they didn't take him up on it. They weren't obedient. And they missed the very best that God had for them. We're going to read that in that sixth year, he provided enough for three additional years in one year. A surplus of more than they needed. Because he's God and he can do that. But they missed it. They relied on their own strength. They relied on their own provisions. Still happens to this day in Israel. They still will take that seventh year and they'll rent the land out in the sixth year going to, to, a, to a Bedouin or to someone else that doesn't have to follow, you know, that doesn't live according to the law that they believe they're under the law. And so by that, he thinks he's keeping the law. But he's not. What has he done? He's compromised. He's looked for the loophole. Verse 10. Now we look at the holy name of God and the protection of his name. Now the son of an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel. And this Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought each other in the camp. 
And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. And so they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shilameth, the daughter of Debri, of the tribe of Dan. Then they put him in custody that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. One of my favorite passages in the Bible. I know I say that often. But one of my favorite passages in the Bible because I pray that every elder and every pastor, every under-shepherd has studied this passage because this is the beginning of understanding of wisdom. I pray that the family of God, the bride of Christ, you all, have studied this passage because it's the beginning of understanding of wisdom. We find a situation where a man is half Jewish and he's somehow from the mixed nation of, obviously, Egypt, because that's where they had come out of, right? Exodus chapter 12, verse 38, when Israel and Egypt were, you know, kind of coming out. If you remember, some of the Egyptians came out as well and started following the Hebrews as they were making their way out of Egypt. You know who else in the New Testament was similar? Timothy. Paul's son in the faith, wasn't he? He was, his mother was Jewish, but his father was a Greek. Very similar. Well, what happens? This Israelite woman's son, he, he blasphemes the name of the Lord. He cursed. He committed this crime of blasphemy. What is blasphemy? It literally means in the Hebrew to pierce or to cut someone. In the case of God, what he's saying is that through words, you're piercing or cutting God. That's, that's the literal understanding of what this is saying. Now, in the Middle East, if you've ever gone to Israel or you've been in the Middle East, you know that a, a lot is built up or bound up into a person's name. Ultimately, it's often tied to his character. We see that a lot in the Hebrew. Uh, you know, um, Isaac, right? His name, what does it mean? Laughter. What was Sarah doing? laughing when she heard the testimony of the angels. And God had said, your wife is laughing. Esau, right? In the Hebrew, Esau, right? He said, laughter. Well, it means something. So in that case, in the case of God, blasphemy was in effect an act of repudiation. Repudiation. Extra biblical writings um, reveal that it seems sort of common or it was commonplace for the Egyptians as they would, you know, believe in their 7,800 different gods as we were studying Exodus, we sort of talked about that, that they would often even curse their own gods, their many gods. So here's this man who's half Egyptian and half Hebrew or Jewish and he's fallen back into more is caught than taught because where do you think he learned to curse the gods that way? Possibly, we're not told in Scripture. I certainly don't want to read into this. But, but friends and family here, you know, what you do in your home matters. Your kids watch. Your wife watches. Your husband watches. More is caught than taught. And we see in this case right here that it appears that maybe he saw dad cursing one of the 7,800 gods. So he thought nothing of it himself to do something similar. And, and maybe he considered... I hope he didn't, but the source of his sin here seems that he considers the Lord God of Israel the same maybe as the false gods of Egypt. Common. 
He's common. Maybe one of these 7,800. What do we call that? It's called idolatry. Isn't that what it's called? Isn't that an example of what the sin here is? And in verse 11, he says, of the Lord. Do you notice that's in italics in your Bible? Do you see that in your Bible? It's in italics. That means it was added. It was added later for readability. But it was understand that it was originally written in the Hebrew as name. N-A-M-E, and it would have been capital. The name of God, right? Jehovah. It's where we get Jehovah. It's a name, right? Even today, if you were to write somebody back in Israel uh, a letter, and you might ask them a question, and maybe you might ask them how's you know, things going, and they would write, and they might say, praise God back. When they write back, they're not going to write praise G-O-D most of the time. In your letter, it's going to be G-D, right? Or they'll use something like Adonai. They'll put in there, which means Lord. They'll, they'll, they'll put that in there uh, because they won't write the holy name of God out. That's why often the scribes, as they were copying the Old Testament, weren't sure on the proper pronunciation. We today weren't sure of the proper pronunciation of, you know, Jehovah or Yahweh. Okay? Now, it is also interesting when you go back and you study, when they would, the scribes would meet, and I, I think I've shared this before in canon, when they would go through and they would copy every single word on every verse had a numerical number associated with it. And as you would write these down, at the end of the verse, they would do a checksum. So let's say there was three words in a verse. They should put a number three, or they would use word. Each word had a number as well. They would take that and add that up. At the end of the column, they would add them all up, and they knew that if the number came out the same on every single manuscript or every copy, that everything was correct. They put that kind of attention and detail into this. And if it wasn't correct, they didn't turn around and erase over it. And you know what they did? They tore it up and they would redo it all from scratch again. Just one word missing or incorrect. Tremendous amount of detail. Well, it was commonplace that as a scribe, as someone is going to copy this, uh, uh, translate or even what they would do is before they got to the name God, as it's written here, you know, Jehovah or Jehovah, they would turn around and they would go over to the basin and they would take water. They'd roll up their sleeves and they would take water and they would wash from the elbow down. They would wash their hands. They would then go over and take the, the you know, obviously they didn't, they didn't use a, a pen, but, you know, a quiver, whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, they'd go back and they would write Lord. And then they would go back again and they would wash their hands one more time and come back and then continue on in writing the verse. They put that much emphasis that every time you see the name of God in your, Hebrew, in your Bible here, that was what happened every single time because they respected and revered the holy name of God. It wasn't commonplace. Today, we live in an age where people take the Lord's name in vain all the time. Even the name of God has become so common, we don't even think to stop and revere his holy name. The Bible tells us the name of all names. Philippians, right? Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Go ahead and turn over there if you want for a moment. Keep your finger right here. Um, and if you want, I'll even read it out loud for you. 
Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name, which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every every knee should bow, and of those in heaven and those on the earth, and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The name above all names. Well, you can turn back. If you look at verse 12 here, And again, I said elders and under shepherds and those looking, you know, serving here in this fellowship, as well as I pray any pastor that would hear this. I mean, think about this. A church of 1.5 million to somewhere between that and 3 million. Moses was unsure what to do. It wasn't written in the word he had that far to tell him, what do you do when someone does this? He, He didn't know what to do here. So what did Moses do? Moses sat down and said, I feel like, or maybe we should. No. He put the man away. He locked him up, in other words. He put him in custody. And then what did he do? He sought God. He went to him and he prayed and he asked, God, what would you have me to do? This is wisdom. He didn't just step He waited on the Lord. This is so important. There are so many people today that that don't know what God has for them. And rather than waiting or going to the word of God to confirm their steps, they're willing to proverbially, you know, in a proverbial way to say, roll the dice, chance. Why? Didn't Romans chapter 12 already, some of you, you know, you've come in for counseling, I've shared, oh, pastor, I don't know what to we open is it possible to know the perfect will of God? That's a question I have for everybody here tonight. Is it possible to know the perfect will of God? Yes, it is. If you don't believe me, be Bereans. Open your Bible right now. Go to Revel, um, go ahead, not Revelation, go to Romans and go to Romans chapter 12. Look at verses one through four. Because it doesn't matter what I think, and it doesn't matter what I, my wisdom is, and what does God say is possible? that we can know the perfect will of God. But he tells us there's a couple things in there you have to do. One, you got to get out of the world. Two, you got to renew your mind. He says you can't use the world's thinking and then somehow think. When you renew your mind, where does he tell us to do that in? The word of God. It's what calibrates us and gets it right. You, you can read that passage in your devotional time. That's a great, sometimes when I show that to people and they see that, I, I immediately see a peace come over them. You mean this was possible all along? Oh, yes. That's why I encourage you all. When you're looking for things that maybe aren't in the Bible, specifically like, well, I don't know, I'm going to move somewhere and, you know, and, and you're unsure, wait on God. Go to the Word and say, Lord, I, I, clearly this isn't something that's a sin, but what would you have me to do, God? And then devotionally just read. Don't, you know, do one of these. Close your eyes and kind of, no. Devotionally read. And you'll be amazed at how you, you read something that you've read a hundred times, but God just puts that into your heart. And you know that word's for you. And you begin to date it. You, you see, I did that. My pastor, he, he discipled me. He loved me. As I spent seven years going in his office and, you know, meeting the Lord, I know the Lord has a call. I don't know what to do. Where am I supposed to go? You know, I don't know. Why are you asking me? Ask God. 
well, how do I do that? You know, God's not going to turn around and say, you know, oh, really? Here I am, by the way, how many years later? But I can remember Ezekiel chapter 2. I was sitting there. I was reading it. And right off the page, verses 1 through 8, he just, he says, there's your marching order. I'm sending you into a foreign land. That's from New York. Y'all on PA are foreign. No, I'm joking. But into this land, right? You still got nice land around here. And some of New York, it's all built up. But you still got nice land around here. Well, I'm sending this land, you know, and he says, you speak the word I give you. You eat what I give you. He says, I don't want anything, to, anything about you to have any fingerprint or nothing to touch what I'm going to do. He says, what I'm going to do is holy, and you'll just screw it up. So just stay out of it. Just stay out of it. You speak, son of man, what I give you to speak. And then the people know there will be a prophet among them. That was the word in which he gave me. It's not me. It's the Lord. But you don't think there's times when I go, Lord, are you sure? I mean, we're going to move. We're going to relocate. You're going to change everything. I go back to that often, probably at least every year. And I read that passage again. And I said, Lord, nothing's changed. It's still right there, and I'm right where I need to be. And until you give me another word, I'm not going anywhere. I won't step out of your will. He wants to do that for all of you. He wants to give you that kind of a commitment, that kind of a promise, that kind of certainty. Again, you got to be careful you're not isogeting. You know, I've seen people, they just, you know, clearly he wants me to do this. And then when it gets difficult, they want to quit. That happens. You know, we, we have guys go out from Calvary Chapel and they go out and they plan. And, you know, I, we had one of our guys go out and I, I remember I sat down with him and I said, do you know that you know? Is it in your Bible? Have you God confirmed? Has he confirmed it on your wife's heart? Yes. Okay, good. Praise the Lord. He won't abandon the flock. Things might get tough. Things may not go the way he thinks it's going to go. But until the Lord releases him in the word, He's not his. He's blood-bought. He doesn't belong to him. You see, that, that's comfort. That's confirmation. Boy, don't we all want that today? Don't you want a little confirmation in your life? Don't you want to know that you know that you know? He wants to give that to us. That's why I said, you know, if you're thinking about ministry or there's somebody in here, maybe you have a heart for ministry, maybe you want to be an elder of the church here, or you've been praying, and you know what? One of the first things I'm going to ask you when you come in my office is, how do you know? And if you tell me because I feel it, I'm going to lovingly look at you and I'm going to say, awesome. When God's put that and confirmed that in the word, I'd love for you to come back and let's talk. And if you come visit me a hundred times before that, I'm going to love you right where you are. Seven years that I mentioned my pastor loves me. Seven years. I'm a little hard-headed. So rather than give his opinion, what did Moses do here? Instead, he brought it to God and he waited for God's direction. Now, this isn't an isolated incident. If you read this and you think, well, boy, this is the only place I see Moses do this. Again, if you're in ministry, pay attention. If you're thinking about ministry, pay attention. If you just want to be a servant of God, pay attention. It's not an isolated incident. Three other times we see Moses, God bless you, does the same thing. 
In the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 9, verses 6 and 8, verses 6 through 8, Moses seeks God's will about a man that uh, was defiled because he went near a dead corpse during the Passover. And he says, Lord, I don't know what to do. I've never experienced this. I've never seen this happen. I don't know what to do. And he once again tells the man, hold on. I'm going to go to God and I'm going to wait on God. God reveals to him, you know what? Here's what you're going to do. Let the man celebrate the Passover on his own a month later because then he'll no longer be ceremonially unclean. Only God could give that perfect answer. It appeased the man and it appeased God. Again, Numbers chapter 15, verse 32. While the children were in the wilderness, they found a man that was breaking the Shabbat by gathering sticks, right? They're watching this go on. And again, Moses was unsure what to do. What, what do I do about this? Well, in verse 35 of that chapter 15, God tells Moses that the man is to be put to death and stoned outside the camp. God was serious about what he said. He said obedience, mercy, but obedience, because he was doing what? What was the idea of the Sabbath again? It was a day of rest. But what was it really about? Fellowship. God takes fellowship seriously. Aren't you glad we're not under the law? We'd all probably be wiped out, man. Well, I can't speak for you. I wouldn't be here. Well, once again, Numbers chapter 27, verse 1. The daughters of Zilphold or Zelophad, there were five sisters who came into Moses, you might remember this, with a concern of how, or really over the promised land, and you know, what was to happen, uh, how was it to be divided, because the father didn't have any boys, and the boys was passed down, or the land, excuse me, was passed down to the boys that way, but he didn't have any sons. Their father died in the wilderness, and there was no male heir, so what happened? So again, Moses didn't know. He went to God. And he turned around and Moses brought the case before God. In verse 5 and 7 of chapter 27, it says, God told Moses to give their fathers the possession to the girls. To the girls that way, to the daughters of the man, to the five sisters. Once again, perfect wisdom. Because how else would they have been able to provide for themselves, right? So the inheritance went to the girls that way. When we yield to the Lord specifically for his commands for our lives, it always yields the right results. If, if one of you come to me, or, or Pastor Bill, or any of us here, and you, you come in and say, you know, Pastor, the Lord might be leading me to make a job change, or, you know, what do you think? What do you think I should do? Do you think I should take this other job? Pastor Bill and, and or I are going to look at you and go, I don't know. One of our elders or any of our elders are going to look at you and go, I don't know. If they don't tell you that, let me know. <laughs> if I don't tell you that, draw me back to the word. I don't know. Why am I saying that? Because they ought not to draw people unto themselves. I ought not to draw someone to myself with my wisdom. You don't want to hear what I think. I'll mess you up. I messed me up. But if you do it Jesus' way and we go to his word, oh, every single time. And even if you get misguided or misdirected, you know what's so beautiful about Jesus? Is he's not going to thump you because your heart is right and you have the right motive to seek his will. If you step in the wrong way, he's just gently going to redirect you. 
He's going to gently move you into the correct place. He does it over and over again, David and others, throughout the Bible and the Old Testament. But yeah, I'm, I'm going to answer that way. I have no idea. I'm going to say, pray and seek the Lord for wisdom. James chapter uh, 1 verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, it will be given to him. That's a promise from God. God said so. That's what I'm going to say. God said so. Go to him. Now, why can I say that? Because if you look at the Bible, the Bible doesn't have anything specific about you changing a job. That's not sinful, right? If the Lord's leading you in a different direction, potentially, he's not, there's not, it doesn't say thou shall not change jobs. You know, Exodus chapter 20, right? The, the, the 11th to the Decalogue. No, it, do, it doesn't say that, right? See, you don't know, but, but what if you come to me and, and you say, Hey, Pastor, I, I want to sit down. We, I remember a few years ago, we had a family come to us and say, Lord, you know, I've been praying to the Lord, and I, but I, I want to know, I want to understand, what does the Bible say? I have a relative, a family member who is living in a sexual, uh, homosexual lifestyle. They, they, they want to get married, and they're asking me, you know, can I come to the wedding, or is this okay? And I said, well, what's the Bible say? And they looked at me and said, well, that's your job. You point me to where the verses are, and I'll read them with you. How about that? Come on. What do you think I'm looking at you for? No. And I said, okay. So we opened up the Bible, and I, and I can go through, and I can point out very clearly in the Bible where it says homosexuality is a sin. And marrying a homosexual couple would be sinful. Open and closed case. Very easy. You know, one of the ones like, thank you, Jesus, right? Where do I know that? Leviticus, we're in the book of Leviticus. We read it in chapter 18, verse 22. Well, I'm not under the law. I'm glad you said that. Let's go to the seven or eight different places in the New Testament. And if that's not enough, we'll go through all the Old Testament too. What's the whole counsel, the whole word of God say? That's also important because context is king. Anybody can pick a little verse out and make it say anything they want it to say. But if you read the Bible in context, you'll never go wrong. It's good hermeneutics. It's good hermeneutics. So, you know, I love this wisdom, you see, because you want God's heart, not man's wisdom. I, I'm saying that for all of us here, and I think many of you understand that, but but I believe there's somebody here, and, you know, the Lord wouldn't have stirred my heart this way. I believe there's somebody here tonight that really doesn't understand that, maybe, or, or hasn't put that into practice in their lives. Where every time something comes up, they, they, if it's not specifically written, and it's okay if you don't know if it's in there, and you come, Pastor, you know, is there something? That's, that's fine. We're happy. Any of us here are happy to, your brothers and sisters, the same thing right here. They're happy to point you back in the Bible, or, or you know, gosh, let's go at Pastor. I, I don't know. Does the Bible say anything? Hey, that's okay. But your heart's right because you want to seek the word and then you want to get a confirmation that God's telling you that's what you're to do. And you date it. Because when things don't go so right for you, you want to initially do what? Quit or go, maybe I heard you wrong or what do I do? And you, you become very unstable. There's a whole tribe. The tribe of Reuben, they were called, remember? Unstable as water, it said. So, you know, when you go back to the word and you do it peacefully and you really have the right motive of heart and you say, God, confirm this every single time. I've never met someone that hasn't gone back and sat before their word. Now, maybe it didn't happen that day. Sometimes it takes weeks, sometimes months or even years. Or sometimes somebody says, well, I haven't heard the Lord in a long time. 
man, I'm in the wilderness. I've had that experience. You know, I'm at Kaddish Barnea again, right? What's going on? Before we even moved into this building, I, I had that moment. You know, we're back in Railroad Avenue. I thought we were going to buy the lot across the way, maybe tear the building down and do something. And the Lord had something different for us. He had this building for us, but I didn't know that. And I, I just didn't hear from the Lord. What are, you, what are you showing us? And I remember this came up, and I, I came in the driveway over here, this parking lot, and I, I began to pray walk. I took my Bible out, and I just walked around the building, and I just started praying. And I didn't hear anything from the Lord specifically. I'm just reading. And, and I got back in the car and I remember praying, going, God, you're so faithful. I don't want to ever step out of your will. Certainly it's not my place. This is your church. I, I, I can't do anything here, Lord, until you show me. I won't. I won't do it. And God said, where did you leave off? I already showed you. And I was puzzled for him. I'm like, what do you mean, Lord? And then it dawned on me. I was like six months ahead in my devotion study, you know, from where we were, you know, week, line by line, week by week. I had already read ahead. He, he says, go back to where I last spoke to you. I turned back into Exodus where we were, and it was right there. It like literally jumped off the page. My heart starts beating like, Lord, for about a month now, I've been, you know, all over the place in my mind. You know, what are we... I literally start walking around the building and I've got this and I know what they're asking for the building when we can't afford this place. I, I mean, you know, it's, it's, we're, we're, uh, we're the widow's might here. You know, it's a lot of faithful people that give. It's the widow's might. You know, we, we, we don't have large coffers. We don't have more than a month month's supply of anything in the back. We just, we, we live on faith and we trust whatever God provides what we're supposed to have and we just we're just blessed by it. So I'm I'm coming around and I'm looking I'm going Lord we don't have more than a month I, I don't even know how we you know and I get to the front right by the entrance and it's right in Exodus there and he says build my sanctuary. And I look right at the door. I'm right at the front door here. And I said Lord it's good enough for me. That's good enough for me. I don't need to figure out the rest of it. I need to step in faith and be obedient and watch what you'll do. And then the Lord raised up people to help us. Generosity like I've never seen. And, you know, you hear about these things in the days we're living in. But until you actually experience it and see it and what it was to re renovate this place and all the things, we're still a young church. It's only been three years we've been going on Sundays. The Lord just provided us a baptistry. We just ordered it. We're now, we now have our own baptistry that we're going to be able to put up here so we can do baptism the first week in February. We have a young girl that wanted to come up and be baptized. We have another uh, lady that just got saved last couple weeks ago. She wants to get baptized. And I'm like, Lord, where are we going to get a baptistry from? The last time we borrowed one from another brother up in Frederick, and I'm like, what are we going to do, Lord? And God says, order the baptistry. Lord, that's like four grand. We don't have four grand. Lord says, order the baptistry. Okay. Obviously talk. God provided. Not one of you knew about that. Other than on our Sunday night prayer, we, we, we bring things up to the Lord. Not one of you knew. Nobody had to put up a little thermometer that says, we need to raise four grand to get a baptistry. Nobody guilted you into doing anything. 
Somebody was led by the Holy Spirit and the Lord put it on their heart and it just happened. You see that over and over again. And, and you know, go to a second service. Lord, but what if nobody comes? Fair, fair question. You go to a second service, first service fills up. Half a second service. Okay, Lord, so what you're saying is every time I listen to you, you have gone before me. Every single time when I will walk by faith and not by sight, when I will walk by promise and not by understanding, when I will yield my own conscience and my mind to your perfect will, in spite of me, you will move on your hearts. And you all are the church. You're the body of Christ. Nobody had to come to you and tell you this is a need. But I know, and some of you know who you are, and I'm, I, that's between you and God. I'm not going to steal your gift from the Lord, your reward from the Lord. But you know when God's moved on your heart. Nobody had to tell you what we needed. You just knew, and next thing you know, you're writing a checkout, and it's going in the agape box. And you know who gets the glory for that? God does. And you know what it does to me? It wrecks me. I get on my knees, and I weep. Because I sit there and go, God, I, if I didn't have any better term, I can't believe it. This is really happening. Lord, you're permitting every one of our needs. And then we talk to the treasurer and we, we look at the things and I go, well, how are we going to pay next month? <laughs> you know, it's the funniest thing because we see it happen. And then you look at the next month and you go, we don't have enough. How's that going to work? And he does it all over again because he knows we're so fickle. Now, why am I making so much a, you know, a, a, a deal on this? Why am I spending so much time? Because like I said, we're gonna, this is all foundational for chapter 25. Because when we miss this, we miss what God wants to do in our lives. Friends, I know there's people here tonight that God is moving in your life and he wants to do something in your life. And maybe you've been a little bit um, apprehensive. Maybe you're wondering how. Lord, how? Show me, God. Bring it to Jesus. Bring it to the word and wait on him. And then when he commands you, go. Go. Do. And leave the consequences to him. Amen? Well, the Lord's will, the Lord's way. Let's look at verse 13. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take out... Take outside the camp him who has cursed. Then let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel saying, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. And whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. So God did exactly what he said. If Moses, if you come to me, he says, I'm going to tell you what it is. It's capital punishment right there. It's a capital crime. And he says, look, then those who did what? They laid their, they, they laid their head, on, or excuse me, they laid their hands on his head. And this is really going back to the principle that we see in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 6 and 7 says, whoever is deserving death, 
shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So when you have this group of people, they're all coming and doing this. They're all bearing witness to the crime. What does this do? This protects from a rogue, somebody going out there and going, you did all, you know, and just killing people, right? He says there has to be a testimony, a witness. You know, God takes it seriously when, when movies, TV series, music, people's own words blaspheme his holy name. What do you let into your house? Some of your kids are watching movies. Even though it says PG-13, it's taken the Lord's name. And I don't go see those movies. I don't care if they're G. If they're taking the Lord's name in vain, I don't go see them. I want nothing to do with it. Ah, oh, pastor, you're, you're getting zealous, aren't you? Aren't you getting a little bit legalistic? No. Not when it's the name of God. What you do in your house is between you and the Lord. For me and my house, I'm going to serve the Lord. And anybody who takes the name of my God, I want nothing to do with it. I was never um, bold until just probably when I got started serving in ministry about this. I was never so bold. People used to take the name of the Lord and I just would ignore it or just put my head down because I was shamed. Even though I didn't do it, I, I was shamed for them. But I was like, oh, I don't want to hurt their feelings. I remember praying for boldness in the Holy Spirit and one day I, I just said, please don't take the name of my God in vain. If you want, put my name in there. Put anything else you'd have in there, but please don't take the name of my God. Just a week ago, I happened to be on a job site. Uh, some of you know on my day off, I go out and do some commercial inspection, things like that. I was on a job site. And sure enough, I'm standing there and the guy just takes the Lord's name in vain. And I turned and I looked at him and I said, I'm going to ask you gently and politely, please don't do that. Please don't do that. For my God has never done anything to you but bless you and love you. His desire is that you would spend eternity with him. His desire is that you would know him more and receive his love for you. Please don't bash him. Please don't take his name in vain. The guy looked at me and he said, you know, I've heard people try to correct me and they've said that, and you know, ah, you know, it's going to be a fist fight. And I said, yeah, that's not Jesus. <laughs> he says, but your heart was so gentle because in that, what you did is you're trying to draw me to God. And I looked at him like, bingo, you know, but, but the way that he responded, it was a gentleness, even how he responded back because it, it wasn't like a fight, you know what I mean? It wasn't like I'm upping it, he's trying to up it, and it, it was like peaceable for him. And he says, you know what? Yeah. He says, I don't know why I do that. My mom didn't raise me that way. He says, well, you know, I did one time, my grandma slapped my face, put soap in my mouth. That's back when we used to put soap in your mouth, you know? Now everybody thinks you're going to get poisoning or something. But well, that's, another, that's another teaching for another time. But, you know, we murder. We murder with this image of cutting and piercing of God with our words. When we blaspheme the name of God, we murder, we pierce, we cut the name of God. You see, God's command of execution is corporate. The entire congregation was involved. This man has, had not only sinned against God, he sinned against the entire community. 
that was part of it. This, this is why there was, I think, confusion for many years of, again about the exact um, pronunciation of the, the tetragrammaton of uh, Yahweh. You know, I think it's where it came from. Uh, let's look at verse 17 through 22, and I think we'll close there tonight, even though I wanted to get into chapter 25. I, I'm just really enjoying Leviticus. Because once we get into 25, we have one more chapter, and then we have another teaching, probably 26 and 27. We'll be in the book of Numbers. It's, it's happening so quick. We're moving. Are you enjoying the study? I mean, are you enjoying all that God is speaking to your heart through this book? You know, when people think about the book of Leviticus and you tell them, I'm studying the book of Leviticus, they're like, that's dry. All it is is laws and rules. And, and you get to say, no, have you missed Jesus in that book? What do you mean? I never saw the name of Jesus in that book. Oh, come on over. We're going to break some bread. And we'll start right there, right? Well, let's look at verse 17. He says, whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Now, now this is important. I, I want to just say this before we These are provisions of law and order. These are limitations. This is not God calling out a specific, um, uh, you must do this. What God effectively is doing here, if you read it, is he's saying, you can't do more than this. It's, it, it, we'll talk about that as we, we exegete it because human nature, if somebody wrongs you, 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 don't, you knocked out my tooth. I'm going to knock out your head or teeth. How easily it rolls off the tongue. So he says, no, you can't do that. Tooth for tooth, not eye for eyes. You see, he's putting the limitation on it. People have eisegeted this passage and this scripture and said, well, this is a God of the Old Testament and Jesus is the God of the New Testament. <laughs> no, it's God. He just knows the, the error of man's heart and he's going, slow down, tiger, one step at a time. No, you're not going to turn around and take somebody's whole teeth and stuff because you were wrong because, you know, somebody took your, your, your piece of bread, right? So understand the context as we go through this. He says, whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good animal for animal. Again, he's imposing a limit, not worse. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor as he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, as he has caused disfigurement of a man. So shall it be done to him, and whoever kills any animal shall restore it. But whoever kills a man shall be put to death. You shall have the same law for the stranger and one from your own country. For I am the Lord your God. I am not a respecter of persons. Then Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and they took outside the camp him who had cursed and stoned him with stones, showing the obedience, kind of jumps back there, so that the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. All right. Well, let's talk about this here a little bit. Um, again, and this is in, in the giving of context, or the context is giving of what? We just read about who? An Egyptian blasphemer, right? Half Egyptian, half Hebrew blasphemer. And God stated the fundamental principle of his justice for crime that it must be punished. He called for a capital crime, right? He called it a capital crime. But he also says it has to be in proportion to the appropriate crime, right? Life is sacred. Life is sacred. So again, many people take an eye 
for eyes or a tooth for teeth. But he says, no, it's an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth. He intended to limit, limit this so that no man, would, or even judge for that matter, to be transparent, would be able to make up his own punishment. Our Supreme Court would do well to go back to the Founding Fathers document and understand exactly what was written in that document and what was attended, not the new laws that they see fit making. And much of that is based on the Word of God. And the founders, I mean, they even quote it down in um, verse 10 in chapter 25. Liberty. It's written on a bell in your state, or your commonwealth as you prefer. In Philadelphia, Liberty Hall, right? Or what do they call it? You know, the Liberty Bell there. <laughs> we'll talk about that next week. But he's, he's intending this limit. Unfortunately, human nature wants to attack the, uh, the person that, that wrongs them worse than it, we were hurt. And God puts a limit on the ability to pay back. <laughs> Aren't you glad he does that? He, he puts a limit on this. Um, Jesus, since people try to claim that Jesus is, you know, a different God of the New Testament, Old Testament, no, Jesus really said the right thing. But Jesus said, let me help you understand what, what my father was really saying here. And what I'm saying, Jesus, he condemned actually taking the command as law. He says, if you take this as law, you missed it. Because that's not what my father intended. This wasn't, you have to take an eye for an eye. Because that would be contradicting Scripture, and Scripture doesn't contradict itself. He said, no, what did Jesus say? He said, look, not only to the community, but even to the personal relationships, he says, where love, forgiveness, right, where there's love and there's forgiveness, he also told him to go the extra mile. Remember that? Not, not looking for equal revenge. He says, that's to be the rule. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42, if you want to go back and read that. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 42. God's saying, no, that was never part of the plan. That if somebody knocks your eye out, you're going to knock their eye No, he says, that's the limit. He says, really, not paying that back is the true heart. Forgiveness. Now, I, I want to stand before you here and say, I know that's difficult. If somebody's murdered your child or murder somebody you love, for you to look at your accuser, or excuse me, your, you know, the person that's, that's wronged you, and to turn around and say, you know what, I forgive you, brother. I forgive you, sister. That's really hard. I would suggest to you it's impossible without Jesus Christ. It's impossible without Jesus Christ. If you've tried to do that, or you've tried to do that in your strength, you have failed, and you would fail. I would fail. But when you put on Christ, all things are possible because it's no longer you, but Christ in you. His desire is to heal and set free. But we need to talk about these things one to another. We don't need to keep all this, you know, just to ourselves that way. And then he goes in verse 23 and he closes out this chapter by you know, I think a very important verse in this is he demonstrates that what God had commanded, Israel was faithful to comply. He was able to carry out obedience. God expected them to obey it, even when it's difficult. And he expects that from you and I. 
So we're going to look at next week, you know, um, we looked at, like I said, you know, in chapter 24, really the holy oil, the holy bread, and the holy name. Next week, we're going to look at the holy land. We're going to look at the Sabbaths, the year and the years of Jubilee. And we're going to look at how it related to holiness, repentance, rest, restoration. Okay. This is all part of God's redemptive plan. Um, I'd ask that we all stand and we're going to pray. We're just going to pray. You know, we read this tonight. God, God wants a few things from us here. He wants us to have a pure heart. As we read this and we just meditate on this tonight here, some of us aren't walking this out. Some of us have been relying too much on our own strength, our own wisdom. We need Jesus. Some of us have not forgiven Somebody's wronged you. Maybe something in this life that you're like, man, I can never reconcile or forgive. I want you to know you can through Jesus Christ. And I know it's hard. I know there's people that have been abused here. I know there's things that are just horrific that I, I can't even understand what you're going through. I don't even understand. And I don't want to pretend to. But I know Jesus Christ, and I know he's a God of love, and he's a God of holiness. He's a God of restoration. I know he wants to give us freedom and peace, and he wants to restore our hearts. All we have to do is ask. Let's do that tonight. God, as you just overheard, Lord, I, I pray, Jesus, right now, for all of us here, Lord, but especially for those that are hurting because they've been wronged, Lord. And they've never been able to lay it down at your feet, Jesus. Lord, they have a problem looking to a heavenly father because their father abused them, Lord. Their mother, brother, sister, something, Lord. Someone they trusted stole their innocence, Jesus. And God, it was never part of your plan. But God, you know the only way that they're going to be set free is if they forgive. And God, I, I certainly don't understand all that needs to go into that, Jesus. I trust you'll speak to the hearts of your people and their, their minds here tonight. God, I pray you'd create a holy people here, a bride that's refined, a bride that's focused on repentance and rest and restoration. Restore in us, Lord, what's broken. Heal in us what, Lord, no man or counselor can touch. Lord, do your perfect work in us. God, let it all be part of your redemptive nature and plan. God, we want a pure, undivided heart here tonight. God, cleanse us. Jesus, heal us. Lord, restore what the canker worm's eaten. And Lord, in doing so, we know that's going to begin a revival in us tonight. We need your oil. We need your light. We want you to be that lampstand, Jesus. Light our path. Thank you for your holy word. Seal it in our hearts here tonight. Renew us and restore us.
And we ask this in your holy name, Jesus Christ. And all God's people prayed. Amen. God bless you all. I love you all. Don't forget this Saturday, men, we have our, our, uh, our time of meeting, men's breakfast, men in armor. It's at 9 a.m. on Saturday. We'll have eggs. We'll have all types of breakfast. Come on out and join us. We're going through the book of Nehemiah, uh, David's teaching. So grab your Bibles and join us. And if, you, uh, if you're hurting tonight, if there's something you want, it's a special prayer for Pastor Bill, the elders will be up here tonight. Um, if you need healing, if you are hurt, you know, we'll put oil on, we'll anoint you with oil. Come up, don't, don't, don't keep it, don't take it home tonight. Lay it down at the, at the cross. God bless you all.